Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. In the 5th century BC... Herodotus alluded to men capable of transforming themselves into wolves. And in one of the earliest episodes of this podcast, slightly more recently, Dr. Jan Mackelson and I examined a case from the Basque in 1609 of a 13-year-old self-confessed werewolf called Jean Grenier. It remains one of my favourite podcasts to date, and I urge you to seek it out if you haven't heard it. Although by comparison to the number of accused witches in our period, werewolf trials were not especially common, Grenier was not the only person to be formally charged. The majority of the nearly 300 cases where records survive, however, involve people being accused and then denying the accusation. Then they were generally tortured, and subsequently they confessed to being a werewolf in ways that very closely reflected the scenarios put to them by their learned interrogators. But the use of torture had been abolished a few years before the case under study today. And anyway, this werewolf was out and proud. Today's case concerns a peasant in his 80s known as Old Tis, a shortening of Matisse, in the 1690s in Livonia, a region that now encompasses parts of Latvia and Estonia. Old Tis freely admitted to having been a werewolf but his idea of what that meant was disturbingly different from what his judges at the district court of Wendon, today's Circes, 88 kilometres northeast of Riga, expected. The case is translated and printed in the book Ortiz, A Livonian Werewolf, a Classic Case in Comparative Perspective. The book's authors are Carla Ginsberg and Bruce Lincoln. Carla Ginsberg is Professor Emeritus at the University of California, L.A., and the Scuola Normale Superiore di Pisa, and is famous for his books The Cheese and the Worms and The Night Battles, as they're given in their English translations, the latter about the Benandante, or the good-doers, of northeastern Italy who battled witches at night. Bruce Lincoln is the Caroline E. Haskell Distinguished Service Professor Emeritus of the History of Religions at the University of Chicago, and a world expert on the relationship between history and myth. In their book, these two great scholars disagree about how to interpret Tease's case, and you know you're in for a treat when I tell you that they both join me today to discuss werewolves. Well, it is a special night when I am joined by not one great scholar, but in this case two Professors Ginsberg and Lincoln in alphabetical order. I am absolutely delighted to spend some time with you talking about this amazing case. So let's, with no further ado, get into it. I think we should perhaps think first of all about what we can learn from the transcript of the case and then we'll move on to thinking about how we can interpret it, on which you disagree. So, Professor Lincoln, please could you introduce the case to us? Could you tell us who Old Tees was and how his claim to be or to have been a werewolf first came to the attention of the authorities? Old Tees is a Livonian peasant. He lived in what today is Latvia. He was born early in the 17th century. We don't know exactly when. 
But toward the end of the century, he found himself in court. One of his neighbors, as he's waiting to testify in an unrelated law case, one of his neighbors expressed surprise that Teese was going to testify because he would have to swear an oath. And as this other witness says, everyone knows he's a werewolf and runs around with the devil. And how could he possibly swear an oath? At which point, hearing that is in progress, reorient itself completely to focus on old teeth. And there follows an extraordinary exchange in which they attempt to convict him of werewolfery, which is a punishable crime, and in their mind is associated with a satanic pact in which the werewolves are instruments of the devil, and Teese insists that they have everything wrong and that they misunderstand this completely and proceeds to instruct them. Yes, he is a werewolf. There are many other werewolves in the neighborhood, but in fact, they are enemies of the devil. And as he puts it, hounds of God. And each year at certain appointed times of the year, they invade hell to do battle to recover the earth's prosperity, which has been stolen from them and their countrymen by witches and other servants of Satan who are their mortal enemies. And when they succeed, there is prosperity. And when they are overcome in battle or time their invasion too late, scarcity and suffering follow. And the judges have never heard anything like this. And they call in the village pastor. They admonish Teese. They threaten him. They interrogate him. They drag out theological stereotypes to try to get him to acknowledge the enormity of his errors and sins. And he maneuvers with considerable skill, sometimes dissembling, sometimes ceding some ground, but always insisting on the central point that he is an enemy and not a servant of Satan. And at the end of this trial, the judges throw up their hands and they say, we've never heard such a thing. We don't know what to do. We better refer this to a higher court because it's beyond us. Technically, they need either a confession from him or concrete evidence of a satanic pact. And this trial happens to take place, I think, seven years after torture has been forbidden. And as a result, they can't use the standard methods to extract the confession from him that they need. And he clearly knows that he will not be tortured. And that probably has something to do with the boldness with which he addresses them. But at some point, it's decided to take down a transcript of this trial, and it sat in the archives for two and a half centuries, and then was recovered. And it is surely the best testimony we have of what someone who felt himself to be a werewolf thought the experience meant. And he probably is the most adorable werewolf in the historical record. And it's simply a delight reading and watching him maneuver his encounter with the law. That's a wonderful introduction. Thank you. Professor Ginsburg, to pick up on the attitude of the judges, they seem to have been initially sceptical and they seem to have doubted the veracity of Altice's claims. And they even, first of all, say they wonder if he's in full possession of his mind and then they try to trap him. What do you make of their responses? There is something very important in this reaction of the judges vis-à-vis -vis the confessions or the tales emerging from the defendant. There is a gap between the judge's expectations, the judge's stereotypes, and what emerges from the defendant's tales. So this gap is something which I also came across in the Friulian trials against the Benandanti. And I think this gap is very important because it opens a window vis-à-vis -a, -vis a layer of beliefs which are usually outside the historian's perception. So there is an anomaly. And I think that the debate between Bruce Lincoln and myself also shared a recognition of the anomaly of the trial. How can we interpret it? So there was a kind of a shared judgment about the nature of the document and then diverging interpretations. I have been concerned with anomalies since the very beginning of my trajectory as a historian. The anomaly can be regarded as a local anomaly or maybe an anomaly pointing to a wider phenomenon which has been historically unavailable because it has been forgotten, destroyed, uh, it has not been recorded by existing evidence, or it can be 
a complete anomaly related to an individual case. Now, this, as Bruce immediately agreed, is not the case with Iber and Dante because we have more than 50 cases in which there is a convergence starting from a common layer of beliefs. But in the case of this, it would be possible to argue that, in fact, this was an individual case, not only in terms of the recorded evidence, but also in terms of what he said. Thank you. That's very helpful. So let's drill down into a few more of the details that we learned from it before we get to think a little bit more about the interpretation. Of course, although we're always thinking about interpretation, really. But Professor Lincoln, some of the details that come out are fascinating. The location of hell, the gender of werewolves, how one becomes a werewolf, that sort of thing. Could you tell us a bit more about some of those things? First, we need to observe that Livonia was considered the classical home of werewolves in much the way that Transylvania serves for vampires that we have numerous accounts of how widespread the phenomenon was and six or eight learned texts in which worthies of the church or of the university system express their views about the wildness of Livonia as typified by the fact that there are numerous people who transform themselves from human into wolfish form and then prey upon the livestock raid the villages, steal beer, get drunk, break up things, assault individuals, and above all, steal cattle, horses, pigs, tear them apart and feast on them in the woods. And the background to the Tease case is the set of stereotype discussions of which the judges are fully aware. Their views of what a werewolf is comes less from direct experience or even prior trials than from that learned literature and that stereotypical portrait of the transformation of humans into rapacious predatory creatures. In the Tis case, he follows some of the stereotypes. At one point, he says that he was initiated into the band of werewolves by someone who gave him an enchanted drink. And when he consumed it, magic formulae were spoken, and he gained the power to change into a wolf. He also says that at one point that he puts on a wolf cloak that he was given, and that gives him the power to change into a wolf. On the issue of stealing livestock, something very curious happens. It's the first thing that the judges are interested in. And at first, Tis confesses, yes, he's done that. He's feasted on fat pigs that he and his fellow werewolves stole and so forth. But he turns the discussion away from that rather quickly. And he minimizes his involvement. He says, well, I'm not really very good at stealing animals. There are other fellows who specialize in that, and I don't have their skill. And after the opening 15 or 20 questions, he says as little as possible about the theft of livestock and changes from animals to agricultural products, which is not part of the stereotype at all. You don't find this in any of the learned literature. And the story he has to tell is that every year, witches, sorcerers, evil humans steal the earth's fertility and drag it down into hell. And there they deliver it to Satan himself, and they hold banquets and feasts in hell. And if nothing is done, the earth will dry up and lose all of the crops that make life possible. And it's against that possibility that he and the other werewolves invade hell. Now, describing the location of hell is also interesting and a departure from the stereotypes. He says he has to cross over a body of water, which some people who have read the transcript take to be the ocean or a large body of water or an imaginary body of water. But in fact, he specifies with precision, it's a swamp two kilometers from his home. And the swamp borders on the estate, the castle of the chief judge in the trial. And Tis says, the gates of hell are right on your property, your honor. And most people can't see it. You need special powers to know where to locate it. But when we invade hell, we go to your home underground. And that's where Satan lives with all of his minions. 
The largest anomaly is the, hero, the werewolves are the heroes, not the villains of the story as he tells it. And that's antithetical to everything the judges believe, everything the church teaches, everything you find in the learned literature and the stereotypes. But by way of details, he describes Satan's dwelling and hell differs from the stereotypes. It's not a realm of fire. It's not a realm of punishment. What it is, is the storehouse of the local Lord and the devil and his witches are dressed in the same clothes that the ruling elite wear. And Satan is identifiable as a German landlord. Now, to appreciate that, you have to understand that Livonia is the last piece of Europe converted to Christianity. It's converted by force, by the Teutonic Knights, 400 years before this trial. And the German invaders established themselves as the ruling elite. They hold all of the political offices, all of the church offices, and they maintain rights over livestock, land, and all the valuable property. They are a dominant force at every level. They dress differently. They speak differently. They make and enforce the laws. They teach the theology. And they tell themselves that the local peasants have only converted superficially. They remain pagans beneath the thin veneer of Christianity. And the utmost proof of their sub-civilized status is their tendency to werewolfery. And so every trial for witchcraft or werewolfery reinforces the need for them to remain in power and finish the job of converting the heathen and civilizing this backwater. And to think of the peasants as potentially turning into wolves is a way of talking about them as less than human and extremely dangerous, uncivilized, wild beasts who need a firm hand from above from the ruling elite. And for Tis to say, you steal our crops, you feast on our produce, you deprive us of the prosperity we win by the sweat of our brows, and we're not stealing, you're the thieves. We are reclaiming what is our proper rights and property. It is the greatest inversion of all of the stereotypes, not just in werewolf beliefs, but in the whole structure of beliefs that legitimates the German nobility as a ruling class. Okay, I'm going to come back to this idea about power relations and ask you a bit more about this in a second. But I want to just ask you one more detail, which is about a peasant, apart from Thies, who's mentioned in it. I mean, there are several, but one is called Gurion. What happens with and to him? Thies, in addition to his other skills, practices a ritualized form of veterinary medicine. People whose animals have problems come to Thies to obtain from him charms, blessings, protective action, herbal medicine to set things straight. And Gurian is one of his clients in his practice as a healer. And toward the end of the trial, as the judges become more frustrated with their inability to get a satisfactory confession from Tis, they turn to his healing practice rather than just his werewolfery. And there he does acknowledge that, yes, people come to me, I say some words over bread and salt, and, you know, I invoke some spirits and I'm able to help them. And the question of how much he's paid for this arises, and he sees a trap and he fudges the issue and tries to make it entirely benevolent. And Gurian, as one of his clients, is dragged in to verify the account that Tis has given. And Gurian is frightened of the judges in ways that Tis is not. And he sees the possibilities of punishment and real disaster for his place in the community and maybe his physical safety. And so Gurian is willing to make confessions that Tis will not. And the court convicts him and instructs him, these are terrible pagan practices, you have to desist. He says he won't do it anymore. They sentence him, I think it's to 10 or 20 lashes to make an example of him. And the court seizes on Gorion as an opportunity to assert its power and its dignity and its ability to define the parameters of the situation. And they salvaged something with Gorion that they're in danger of missing out on. 
Tis, we're told, has been charged as a werewolf once before, and the court there, according to both him and witnesses, laughed when he described more or less the same story he told in this court. The, the response of the judges was to take it as something of a joke. They released him without any consequences. And this court says, as a result of that, he was idolized by the peasantry and that he had escaped from the court, he had told his truth, he had suffered no consequences, and his fellow peasants marveled at what he had accomplished. This court is very cautious not to repeat that set of events. That was all really interesting stuff. Let's have a think with Professor Ginsberg now about how you have understood this, because one of the key things that's come out is this idea that Professor Lincoln introduced in that it was not in the nature of werewolves to do evil. This is what Thies is arguing, that they do good, that they are hounds of God. Can you explain that idea once more again about the raiding hell and what sort of function their labours serve, I suppose? Well, first of all, let me say how I came across Thies' case. I was working on the Friulian phenomenon, meaning the Benandanti, and they uh, say that since they were born in a call, they were able to fight in spirit against the witches for the fertility of the crops. So, according to the judges, the Benedictine were witches. That is saying that they were counter-witches. Now, at the very end of my research on the Friulian phenomenon, I came across this case. And I thought there was a strong similarity, notwithstanding the difference of the contexts, between the this case and the Friulian Benedictine case insofar as that there was, in both cases, a devilish stereotype, which was contradicted by the defendant's reactions. And in both cases, Benandanti and Tees were fighting against the witches for the fertility of the crops. Now, in my book, I suggested that there was a morphological similarity, a similarity in terms of forms, which I was unable to explain in historical terms. And in fact, after having written my book, after many years, I started a new research, which had an outcome, another book, which was called in Italian Storia Nocturna, and in English Ecstasies, a deciphering of the witches' habit. Now, I never worked on the context in which Thies made his confessions in quotation marks, actually, let's say, tales or whatever. And so I learned a lot from Bruce Lincoln's approach to this case. But as I said at the beginning of our conversation, I agreed with his approach, but he disagreed with mine. And that was a very interesting asymmetry. And from that asymmetry, the conversation which is put at the end of our book started. So in my view, this divergence has a deep methodological implication, meaning the relationship between morphology and history. I used morphology as a tool in order to advance a historical argument, but I did not focus on the specific synchronic context as Bruce Lincoln did. That's the reason why I learned so much from his approach. On the other hand, I think that Bruce Lincoln in his approach in a way marginalized the diachronic element, meaning the fact that some crucial details in these tales were not isolated. There were precedents. So we have other accounts concerning Baltic countries, concerning werewolves, in which they were regarded as enemies of the witches. So I think that it would be possible to use this case, not only in order to explore, as Bruce Lincoln did, the relationship between the German elite, as embodied by the judges, and the peasants as embodied by, let's say, Tees, but also in order to take Tees' tales as a symptom, as a fragment of something deeper, which is unavailable in that region, but is available in other regions like in Friuli. So I would say that, uh, in my view, the two approaches are compatible, but I would not deny that there is a kind of friction And I learned a lot from that friction. So that's the reason why that conversation was so instructive for me. 
It is very interesting how you both approach this in very different ways. So let me explore a little bit more about your perspective on this, Professor Ginsberg. Your book, The Night Battles, is famous and many people will know it. But for those who don't, you've mentioned it's looking at a case of the Benedanti or the do-gooders or good-doers, perhaps, in northeastern Italy, the Friuli, and your discovery that this group of people fought witches for the sake of the community and that, therefore, we might see Tis and Benedanti as part of a similar set of beliefs. Is that a fair way of putting it? No, I agree. After having read Bruce Lincoln's introduction to our volume, I also added a kind of postscript in which uh, I used a text uh, which I'd read many years ago by Delancre, dealing with werewolves, but not in the Baltic country, but in the Basque country. There, there is a remarkable section in which Delancre, the judge, had a conversation with a young man who said, Yes, I was a werewolf, and I was a follower of the Lord of the Forest, and we fought against witches. So I would say at the two extremes of Europe, we have, let's say, in those marginal areas, a deep layer which also existed in the larger central area, but it has not been documented. And so we can use that comparison between Basque country and Baltic countries in order to argue, well, there was a deep layer behind the devilish stereotype of werewolves, in which werewolves were not, according to the peasants, on the devil side, but they fought against witches for the fertility of the crops. And I think that in a way, in a rather central area, we have an extraordinary documented series of trials in which, as I remarked at the beginning of my intervention, there was a gap between the judge's expectations and what the Benedanti said. So I think that this is something which we would not expect from a heavily controlled kind of documents like Inquisition trials, in which, let's say, the potential use of torture and suggestive questions from the judges would produce a document in which the defendants would say, what the judges expected. Now, in the case of the Benedanti, it's the opposite. And so the amazement of the Benedanti, which in fact was shared by myself when I first came across one of those documents, I still remember that moment. I mean, it's something which, in my view, has a larger implication, which I tried to, let's say, unfold in the book Ecstasies. And so my attempt has been to look at T's case, notwithstanding the synchronic elements which had been so insightful, deciphered by Bruce Lincoln, there are also traces of a deep layer which is part of the landscape I sketched a few minutes ago. Did you know that the earliest condoms were made of animal guts and they were designed to be reused? Or that beans were once considered to be an aphrodisiac? Join me, Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, a new podcast from History Hit, where I, Kate Lister, ask the questions about the stuff we didn't learn in history lessons, or sex ed. We'll be bed-hopping around different time periods, from ancient civilizations to the Middle Ages, to Renaissance and early modern, right up to now. Listen and subscribe to Betwixt the Sheets now, wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Don Wildman. 
And on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies, from stitching the star-spangled banner to striking gold in California, to shooting for the moon with Apollo. We've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. So would it be correct to say that your conviction is that Tisa and the Benandanti were survivors of an ancient agrarian cult that involved shamanistic, ecstatic experiences and survived in these areas like Fruelli and Livonia because they were on the periphery of Europe. Is that to state it correctly? Yeah, this is the argument I put forward, although, I mean, the word cult should be looked at more closely because we are confronted with the old dichotomy between myth and ritual. So we cannot argue that there were actual battles between Berandanti and women or men supposed to be witches or wizards. Certainly, the Berandanti say that they fell into ecstasy, and so they fought in spirit against the witches. And so I would say we are on the side of myth. That seems to me something which is proven by a large amount of evidence in the case of Friuli, and but other kind of evidence scattered in a much larger space, I would say Eurasian space. But this is, uh, let's say, an hypothesis which has been heavily criticized. I'm still very fond of it. And I think that there are pieces of evidence which would actually fit in that morphological landscape involving resemblances, how can we explain those resemblances? Are they the outcome of chance? I doubt it. So, I mean, I think the comparison between uh, Delancre's young man and Thies uh, are not the result of chance. They point uh, to a deeper layer. It's interesting. We have talked about Delancre's young man, Jean Renier, on this podcast before with uh, Dr. Young Markerson. Professor Lincoln, I feel like I ought to come back to you and give you a chance to say a bit more about your perspective. Your reading of the case is that it's focusing on these asymmetrical power relations, the social divide you've pointed to between the German elite and peasants. And in other words, are you suggesting that what we see in this case is a kind of social and political resistance? Social, political, moral, religious, economic... It's also a dispute about the maldistribution of dignity and justice. It's an asymmetry that sweeps across virtually all categories. And yes, I think what we are seeing is a moment of principled and articulate and indeed brilliant resistance to a discriminatory social order. And the discriminatory stereotypes and the self-serving mythology that supports the elite's confidence that they are the proper directors of society, orderers of morality, and judges of others. Now, I read the case primarily with an eye toward the context in which the case took place. A hundred years in Livonia was the limit of my inquiry and I found abundant evidence that let me develop the view of the case that I've tried to present here. I got interested in the case in significant measure from reading Carlo Ginsberg's Benandanti and some other related literature where Thies entered. And I have to say, The Night Battles or I Benandanti in its original is just one of the most thrilling books I've ever read. The research was extraordinary and the insight was brilliant. I was utterly convinced, I remain utterly convinced of the way Carlo interpreted that phenomenon. I'm also quite convinced that there are strong morphological similarities between the case of Old Tis and the Benandanti and some of the other examples that Carlo adduced in Storia Notorna. Where we differ is how do you account for those morphological similarities? He is inclined to see a deep historic stratum where the details originate 
and persist, particularly in backwaters, particularly among illiterate peasants, particularly among those who have been least subjected to Christian learning. And in cases like the Benandanti and Tis and Delancre and numerous others, he sees the persistence of a deep prehistoric, pre-Christian, pan-European style of religiosity. And I'm inclined to say, first, that's possible. I would not insist he's wrong. I think it's a reasonable hypothesis that has to be taken seriously. It could account for the similarities we observe. And the similarities, I think, are real and striking. But I think the evidence is insufficient to make that the most persuasive explanation. I think the differences between these various examples tend to get minimized in an attempt to build the argument that they all are survivals of the same originary style of religiosity. I think in the case of Voltis, you don't have ecstasy, you don't have a call, you don't have any sign at the birth of a child that this is going to be a healer, a shapeshifter, a magician, a savior of any sort. And I think the primary feature of the werewolf mythos in Livonia is bestial predatory rapacity. And you don't find that in most of the other examples that are in the dossier that Professor Ginsburg compiled. And I think that is at the center of Livonian werewolves and at the center of the Tis case. And interpreting that is of crucial importance for that case. Now, it may simply be that the Tis case doesn't belong in the dossier. You can still make the case for a pan-European shamanistic agricultural fertility. But I'm inclined to think that the similarities that we find between Tis and the Benandanti, for instance, are better explained as very similar responses to very similar situations. And that it is the agonistic encounter between a ruling elite that takes the Christian faith and its construction of heaven, hell, God, and Satan as the crucial measure of morality, and a peasantry that is less than fully persuaded by the Christian view of things, and occasionally finds itself dragged into court by the authorities and has to defend itself in a variety of ways. And sometimes these people plead guilty, sometimes they plead ignorant, sometimes they argue the details of the case, but occasionally you find someone who stands up like Tis and says, you've got it all wrong. Your heroes are my villains. Your villains are my heroes. The story you tell casts us as outlaws, when in fact we are defending our community against authorities who discriminate against us consistently and systematically. And I think that moment of courage from a member of the subordinate group speaking that perspective to judges and oppressors can take very similar shapes in different places without there being a prehistoric substratum that is being mobilized to make that argument. I think it's the local distribution of power, the sociology, the ethos of the situation that produces the morphological similarities. Carlo finds that a less persuasive account. We both agree that the similarities are so strong they demand explanation, but we favor different ways of saying, why are these so similar? Why do they differ in the small ways that they do? Would one, slightly reductive, but hopefully fair way to characterise your position be this, that Professor Ginsburg thinks that Tease believed what he said and Professor Lincoln thinks that Tease did not? No, my attitude toward Tease is not that dismissive. I do think he's mobilising a wide variety of material, some of which he believes intensely, some of which he entertains seriously, some of which he's manipulating in the moment. I think there's a bricolage at work, and it's not so simple as to say he doesn't believe anything. Professor Ginsberg. Yeah, I think that we can use a metaphor taken from linguistics. We have, uh, let's say, sentences, either in Friuli or in Livonia, using a vocabulary, and the vocabulary has not been created by the speakers. 
So actually, one of the points which we debated, Bruce Lincoln and myself in our discussion, was the possibility of using the word invention in the case of this. So I think that even if this did not believe in what he said as being related to an inner experience, which was apparently the case of the Benandanti, he was using a vocabulary which was not, let's say, his own invention. It was taken from a pre-existing vocabulary which can be used by historians in order to detect traces of deeper layers which had not been recorded. This is probably the divergence on which Bruce Lincoln and myself have been discussing. In other words, uh, would it be possible to use this case not only in order to look at the interaction between judges and peasants at that time in Livonia, but also as a trace of something deeper which is not recorded? I think that uh, that's the basic divergence between us. Certainly, I used the Benandanti case, which is more telling and certainly much better documented, in order to look at these individual cases. But even in the case of this, we don't have elements which are unique. So even in the Baltic countries, we have werewolves confessing that they actually fought against witches. So I think that it would be impossible to get rid of those anomalies which were not related to an individual inventing his own language in order to fight against the judges. We are dealing with a more widespread phenomenon and also something deeper, which has not been recorded. This case, which is an individual case, an individual anomaly, confronts us with a phenomenon which is familiar to all historians, meaning the fact that our questions don't have an acceptable answers in the existing evidence because the evidence is fragmentary, it has been destroyed, and so on. And when we are dealing with oral culture, most of it has not been recorded. I mean, Inquisition trials, I mean, related to a dreadful institution, in fact, uh, produced documents which are invaluable from the historian's point of view, because they recorded in written documents something which was part of an oral culture, which by definition was going to disappear forever. Yes, that's absolutely right. And we do well to remember how much there is that we don't know, how much these moments that make it into the records seem to give us an insight into the culture. Actually, they could be the tiniest tip of the iceberg and there's so much below that we don't know. So may I ask on a further point then, this is to Professor Lincoln, you mentioned how the peasants had idolised Tees for getting away with it, as it were, last time. And it seems like that was a sort of key to it. And there was another section of the trial where the judges and Tees discuss how he and the other werewolves ate their food, whether raw or roasted. And when I read this the first time round, I thought they were just trying to catch him out. <laughs> but you point to this as a key marker for them of the bestiality or otherwise of werewolves. Could you explain your thinking on that, please? It's a very intricate moment in the transcript where the questions get very short and the answers get very short. And there's a certain amount of tension in the exchange between Tees and the judges. And you can feel a certain curiosity on the judges' part, but also they're trying to track him. And they've focused on the moment when Tees and some of his comrades Tees acknowledges they stole some animals and they feasted on those animals. And the judges want to say, were you running on all fours or were you on two legs at the time that you carried them off? How did you cut them up if you didn't have any knives or any tools? Did you eat them raw or did you eat them cooked the way humans did? And there's a series of about four or five questions of fine-grained detail about this feast. And in each question, there's a similar structure. The judges start with the assumption that the werewolf is most lupine in the moment of feasting. You know, these creatures that mediate between human and wolf shape are in their most wolfish moment when they're eating 
And at each juncture, Tease corrects them and says, no, it wasn't like that. By the time we're eating, we're largely changed back. We eat it cooked, not raw. We took salt when we carried off the pigs and we used salt to season our meat. We didn't have knives, but wolves have sharp teeth and we were able to cut it into portions with our teeth. And then we used our paws to put it on spits so that we could roast it over the fire. And by the time it was done, we were more human and we could eat it much more in the mode of humans. And to my mind, what was at issue there was the judges attempt to characterize these people as most close to the animal, least human. And Tisa's resistance to that stereotype and saying, we may have approached the animal, but we remained largely human. You can't dismiss us as just savage beasts. We cooked, we seasoned, we used utensils. All these are marks of humanity and not animal existence. And I think an issue there is how do the elite understand the peasantry? How do the peasantry wish to be understood by the elite? And that's not fully resolved. It remains a tense arena of contestation between the two views. Yes. So, Professor Ginsburg, you've expressed a way in which you feel that your interpretations might not be mutually exclusive. So do you see it perhaps that they could work together because it could be long-standing beliefs that are used as a form of resistance against the dominant in society? Yes, in fact, I don't think that our interpretations are mutually exclusive. What Bruce Lincoln said in his latest intervention is something which I find completely convincing. It's a very perceptive reading of the trial. So I have no objections at all. But as I said at the beginning of our conversation, as recorded in the book, there is an asymmetry. And I think that's interesting. In other words, uh, I agree with Bruce Lincoln, but Bruce Lincoln does not agree with me or not completely. I mean, he has doubts, as he said. And I think that uh, this is something which is in itself instructive because we can learn from each other. And disagreement, I think, uh, can be extremely productive. I learned a lot from what Bruce Lincoln said, not only from what he said and I agreed with, but also from what he said and I'm not completely convinced by. I mean, mutual learning is nourished by this. And I think that's important. So I wouldn't say that our interpretations are mutually exclusive. Not at all. In fact, I think that the book is the result of a convergences and divergences but learning as a shared experience. And so I'm very grateful to Bruce Lincoln for what I learned from him. It certainly is a masterclass, not just in history, but also in how to have a scholarly debate. We could see a lot more of that in public life and be happy for it, I think. The conclusion that the judges reach is that it's so difficult and doubtful a case they can't reach a definitive conclusion. They then palm it off onto the new district court judges so that it means it's delayed 18 months before the verdict and sentence. In the end, what do the new judges conclude and what do you make of their conclusions? Oh, the new judges simply reassert authority. We feel that a mess has been palmed off on them and it's best to clean this up with as little ambiguity as possible. And they say, the man confessed to be a werewolf. He confessed that he was in hell. What are you hesitating about? Guilty as charged. And they sentence him. The sentence is interesting. He is to be whipped at the church door on Sunday, the most public place, the most public day, the most sacred occasion, as an object lesson to all the other local residents. They don't want him to be idolized anymore. They want to make clear who's in charge. He may have successfully created some doubt, and he bought himself a year and a half. But that doubt is now being put to rest. The authorities remain the authorities. Their story remains the official word. He remains accountable to them. Given his age, they sentence him to fewer lashes than he might otherwise receive. And werewolfry, you know, only a few years before was punished by being burnt at the stake. And so Tis has actually gotten off rather lightly. But the price of that is letting the authorities demonstrate their power one more time. Professor Ginsburg, what do you make of their conclusion? I would say for the judges, this case was uh, anomalous. 
I mean, this perception can be shared by historians as well. This is an anomaly. And uh, so the problem is, uh, what can we do with this anomaly? How can we interpret it? And so in this case, uh, we could say this is an open case. And I assume that the other scholars would approach this case from different perspectives. And so there are no, let's say, final conclusions for sure. And I think that this kind of anomaly is thought-provoking, not only for judges, but for historians as well. Thank you for reminding us of the many interpretations of history, that some of them perhaps can be less good, but that you can have also a couple of competing or overlapping interpretations of the same source and a serious consideration of both of them, as we have done in brief today, is highly illuminating. Thank you so much to both of you to joining me from America and from Italy to have this wonderful conversation. If people want to continue the conversation, as it were, with you, they must pick up a copy of your book, which is Old Tees, a Livonian Werewolf, a Classic Case and Comparative Perspective and really dig deep into the details that we have touched on today. But gentlemen, it has been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. It was very, very instructive and enjoyable. And thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors. Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show, and we want to spread the Tudor and not just the Tudor love. And you can also have your additional weekly booster jab with our Tudor Tuesday newsletter, with news of History Hit's best podcasts, articles, and films. Find out more at historyhit.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.